Luke 6, beginning in verse 43. Hear the word of the Lord. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it because it had been well built. But the one who hears and does not do them is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, as we consider your word today, we know simply in this first reading, we feel within our hearts, Father, the guilt of not doing as your Son has told us. And we are thankful Father, for the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, paying the debt of our disobedience upon the cross. We are thankful, Father, that he did not stay bound in the grave, but you raised your obedient, triumphant son from death so that we may be forgiven of our sin and have life with you forever. And Father, if you have given to us your son, how will you not also with him, freely give us all things that we need. Every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places is ours in Christ. And so we come before your throne of grace boldly, asking that in these moments we would have conviction all over again by your Spirit, and by your Spirit the comfort that we need as well. Pour out your Spirit in abundance. And I pray, Father, that there would be no resistant heart left here in this place. By your word, we live in creation. And by your word, we live again new in the new creation. By your word, revive us and sanctify us. Draw us closer to you and make us like your son, Jesus, like your obedient son. In his name we pray. Amen. Last Sunday, we closed with verses 43 to 45, in which Jesus draws a spiritual application from nature. Just as a good tree does not produce bad fruit, and a bad tree does not produce good fruit, so the good person from the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person from his evil treasure produces evil. We cannot see the health of the tree within. We can't see the roots of the tree. We can't see into the heart of the tree to see if it's healthy. We can only discern 
the health of the tree by the quality of the fruit that is hanging from its branches. And so it is with a person. As each tree is known by its fruit, so we are known by the fruit of our lives and the fruit of our lips. This is the revelation of who we are. We are known by the fruit of our lives and the fruit of our lips. But we are in grave danger. We live in the day that the health of the tree and the health of the fruit is no longer objectively determined. Who is to say these days what is healthy? Who is to say what fruit we can or cannot eat? Who is to say what is right and wrong, what is good and what is evil? This is the effect of that philosophy called secular humanism, in which man is the measure of all things. And we have rejected any standard of authority outside of ourselves to which we would be submitted. Secular humanism. Man is the measure of all things. Who, what outside authority is to define right and wrong for us? What this really is, is the the treason of Eden, in which the devil said to the woman, if you eat of this fruit, God knows in the day you have it, that you will be like him, knowing good and evil. And what was meant, and what Eve clearly understood was that not only would she be able to discern between good and evil, but she would be like God and his authority and decide what is good and what is evil. And so we have embraced in secular humanism, we have embraced the treason of Eden on a national scale, on a societal scale. We decide what is good, And what is evil, right and wrong, and we decide it by cultural consensus. And the consensus today, now in time past, perhaps the consensus was because we began with a Judeo-Christian heritage, there was a consensus of respect for the authority of the Holy Scriptures, for the authority of the church. But the consensus of the moment is that you decide your morality and you decide your truth. You decide the way, you decide the truth, and you decide the life, your way, your truth, your life for yourself. Who can say for another? Who has the right, who has the authority to say what is right and what is wrong for anyone else Objective right and objective wrong. What is that? It's all a matter, a subjective matter of personal preference. And so we have put everything into the same category. Subjective preference. Like, like steak. Like steak, so is sex and so is death. The other night I was sitting at a table in a steakhouse and there were four of us four orders of beef, and we had, it was ordered three or four different ways. With steak, it's how do you want it cooked? How do you like it? It's up to you. It's subjective, right? Obviously, it's personal taste, personal preference. I like mine medium. But steak and sex and death are all in the same category today by cultural consensus 
to be subjective personal preference. How you want it and when you want it is entirely up to you. You decide your way, you decide your truth, and you decide your life. No one else can say. And so because the world today has that mindset concerning morality, who is there to say outside of me, we have taken that commandment from Jesus, do not judge, the world has run with it and turned it on its head. So that it means you cannot say for anyone else what is right and what is wrong. The church has no authority. The word of God has no authority to tell us what is right and what is wrong. That is where we are today. They mean, they understand Jesus to mean now, by do not judge, make no judgments whatsoever. It is absolute. We make no moral evaluations. We, we draw no moral lines, categories, definitions, none of that. But I think the scriptures are very clear that those who do this twist the scriptures to their own destruction. Jesus was very clear in the passage we just read in 43 to 45 that there are objectively good trees and there are objectively bad trees and you can objectively tell, you can judge which is which by their fruit. So the world says, who can say what my truth is? Who can say what Life and, and the way to live is going to be for me. Who has the right to say? But look again what Jesus says in verse 46. The world says, who can say? But Jesus says, why do you not do what I say? Why do you not do what I say? So now, from for the rest of our time together, let's put aside our critique of the culture. And let's focus on our hearts, you and me personally, and let's ask ourselves, am I doing what Jesus says? Am I living how Jesus says to live? Am I loving and giving how Jesus says to love and give? Am I following how Jesus commands me to follow? Am I thinking? Am I valuing how Jesus commands me to think and what he commands me to value? Am I doing what Jesus says? You see, it doesn't matter if your views and your life have all the cultural consensus in the world. It doesn't matter if your workplace approves. It doesn't matter if all your peers gives you a, give you a thumbs up. It doesn't matter if, if your life and your views get a, a million shares and likes on, on social media. It doesn't matter. If, if, if Jesus forbids it, it falls short of his glory and under his judgment. It doesn't matter if your favorite TV show would approve with your life values and choices or the highest court in the land give its approval. If Jesus forbids it, it falls short of his glory and under his judgment. But who is Jesus to say? Who is Jesus to say? Who does this Jesus think he is? Why would I want to do what he tells me? And those are the two questions that I want us to consider. Who is Jesus to say, as, as we are considering the question, am I doing what Jesus says? We want to answer, who is Jesus to tell me? And why would I want to do what he says? This is the issue. 
Who is Jesus to say? So we have several volumes of eyewitness testimony bound together to answer that question, who Jesus is to tell me how I should live, to tell what is right and wrong and good and evil. Now, in Luke's case, he followed all things concerning Jesus. He said in the first few verses of chapter 1, he followed all things concerning Jesus very closely, and he carefully compiled an orderly account. And what Luke says, Jesus does by what he says, has God written all over it. And I know that's kind of jumbled, but I'm going to say it just the same. What Luke says, Jesus does by what he says, has God written all over it. Who is Jesus to say? He is God. This is not another prophet in the long line of prophets. In the first few chapters of Luke, in this narrative, he compares side by side, back and forth, John the Baptist and Jesus Christ. John the Baptist is the greatest of prophets, as Jesus said himself. We're going to see in a few weeks. What does John do as a prophet? He is the mouthpiece of God. He speaks God's words. But Jesus is not just another prophet in the long line of prophets. He doesn't only speak God's words. He speaks God's mighty works. Just like at the very beginning. The first words recorded for us in time and space are, Let there be light, God said. And there was light. What didn't exist And I have said this, these lines a lot, but this actually comes from a children's book, the Jesus Storybook Bible, and I just captured me. Anyway, I need to give credit where it's due, but I've said it so often I've stopped giving credit. That's what preachers do. Start giving credit, and then we start to claim it as our own. But anyway, (laughs) the way it goes is what didn't exist obeyed and came into being. What didn't exist obeyed the command of God and came into being. Let there be light. And there was light. Nothing resists the authority of God. And so it is with Jesus, as we have seen throughout this narrative. Nothing resists Christ's word. So we started back in chapter 4 with the miracles. He spoke to the demonic. Be silent and come out of him. And the demonic obeyed. He said to the leper... Be clean. And the leper was clean. He said to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven. Rise. Nothing resists his word. In chapter 7, it will continue. He will say to this young man, Arise. He will say to the shamed woman, Your sins are forgiven. It will continue into chapter 8. He will say to the wild storm, be still. And then to the dead daughter of Jairus, child, arise. And everything obeys. Everyone obeys. After the demon is sent packing, the people are amazed and they say, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits and they come out. 
after damnation is sent packing, the religious leaders are outraged and they say in Luke 5.51, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And after the storm is stilled, even his own disciples who have been with him a while, they are fearful and they say, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Nothing resists his word. And so the question on everybody's mind is, everybody's lips is, who is this Jesus? Who does he think he is? Who can talk like this? No one has ever spoken like this. Who is this Jesus to say these things? And smack dab in the middle of that narrative, there is a foreigner, a Roman centurion, whose servant is gravely ill, and he sends to Jesus for help. But he doesn't believe that he is worthy for Jesus to be in the same presence as the Lord, to have Jesus under his roof. And so he says, Lord, don't bother. He says, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word and let my servant be healed. Just say the word. Just say so. And it will be. And all of this, nothing resists the authority of Jesus' word. By his word, he works the mighty works of God. All of that leads to chapter 9. And Jesus basically says, You have heard what I say to his disciples. Now, who do you say that I am? You have heard what I say. Now, who do you say that I am? So who is Jesus? Who is Jesus to say? Who is Jesus to command? Who is Jesus to define? Who is Jesus to say what is right and wrong, good and evil, and we must obey him? Who is he? You've heard what he says to the demonic, to the disease, to the deep, and even to the dead, and all do as Jesus says. So if your conclusion is rightly, according to the Bible, that Jesus is Lord and God. And if you aren't living in the obedience of faith, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do as I say? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Why should you do what he says? Because he is God. He is the creator by whom and for whom all things exist. All life is by his word. It came into being by his word and he continues to uphold the universe by the word of his power. He is the Lord by whom you live. Just as there was no light in the beginning... And it came to be by his word. So there was a time when you weren't and came to be by his word. He said, be. And there you were, a single living human cell. By his word, you are fearfully and wonderfully made. By his word, you are sustained. If he would stop speaking life into you, you would stop living immediately. 
You are not your own because He made you. He is God. And for those of us whose trust is in the Lord Jesus Christ for salvation, not only are you not your own because of the first creation, but you are doubly not your own because of the second creation. He called you to Himself through the gospel, through the message of His life and death and resurrection for you. He made you His own. His Word by the Spirit The gospel came into your hearing and at the Spirit's word, you came to life. He said, child, my child, arise. And you rose up believing in his name. Who is he? He is God. God of the first creation. God of the second creation. He is the Lord over all and he is the Savior by whom we live again. Why should you do as he says? Because his word as God is life. His word is life. There is no life anywhere else but in him. So he says, let's read these verses again, 47 to 49. Jesus says, Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and does them, I will show you what he is like. He is like a man building a house who dug deep, and laid the foundation on the rock. And when a flood arose, the stream broke against that house and could not shake it, because it had been well built. But the one who hears my word and does not do my word is like a man who built a house on the ground without a foundation. When the stream broke against it, immediately it fell, and the ruin of that house was great. You can count on something. Storms, are coming. Storms are coming. There might be a, a season where everything is dry, just like we had a long, dry spell in Louisiana. But storms will come again. And sometimes when those storm co- storms come, they fill up the river until the river overflows. And there is a flood. And in the circumstances of life and in the providence of God, His arrangement of circumstances, the river may burst its banks and come crashing into you. We are all going to suffer losses and we can't escape those losses. Some of our losses are mild, so we're left you know, mildly uncertain about what's going to happen next, but not too big of a deal, kind of a run-of-the-mill suffering. But then there is the grave and the severe losses that leave us not mildly uncertain, but shaken to the very core of who we are. And when that day comes, will we be anchored to Christ? Will we be firm and safe and secure in Christ? Will our lives be established and founded upon the word of the Lord Jesus Christ? Jesus says that if we will hear his word and do it, then when the storm comes, we will not be so much as shaken. We will stand fast in the hope of the Lord who is our trust. We will be grounded and we will be immovable. Though heaven itself and earth tremble, we will be firm in Christ. We reside safe in the kingdom that cannot be shaken. We are firm. We are secure in Him. 
In fact, Jesus said, even if the world takes your life and kills, kills your body, not a hair of your head will perish. That's how secure you are in the Lord Jesus Christ. There will be storms in this life and there will be a storm at the very end. On the last day. When all stand before the Lord Jesus Christ. And the wrath of God like a mighty river will rise over all its channels and over all its banks. And those who are not secure in Christ, who have not heard, believed, and obeyed the word of Jesus will perish. Where will you be on that great day? With the world to perish or safe and secure in Christ? Already you can measure your life. Even if you can't know the deepest recesses of your heart, as only God can know our hearts, we can still evaluate our lives by the quality of the fruit that hangs on the branches. By the fruit of our lives and the fruit of their, our lips, we are revealed. Where will you be on that great day of reckoning? Now, I don't want anyone to be confused because it's very easy to confuse the place of faith and obedience. Let us be very clear. Those who don't obey the word of God can't suddenly turn around and begin to obey and gain heaven by their obedience. Heaven cannot be gained by obedience to the law of God. That's what the Bible says. Heaven can't be gained by obedience. But it will be lost without it. It will be lost without it. Pursue holiness without which no one will see the Lord. That's Hebrews. We are saved by the grace of God alone, through faith in the Son of God alone. But we are not saved by faith that is alone. We are justified by faith alone, but we are not saved by a faith that is alone. Faith without works, faith without obedience, is a dead faith. It's a useless faith. It's a, it's a faith on the level that even Satan himself has. James said even the, the demons believe and tremble. They believe intellectually and have some kind of appropriate emotional response to what they believe. They tremble in fear of the living God. But are they saved? Do they have that saving faith? Are they trusting only in Christ? Obviously, of course not. We are saved by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Now, even still, in today, as a Christian, if you obey as well as a born-again, spirit-indwelt person can obey the law of God, if you obey the law as well as a person can obey, we still fall short of his glory. And we must never, never trust in ourselves and what we have done to be right with God. In Matthew chapter 7, in that similar message to what's recorded in Luke's, at the end of it, 
Jesus says, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, did we not do many, let me sum it up, many mighty works in your name? Look what we did. And Jesus' response is, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. Don't claim anything you have, any moral leaf you turn over, any reformation in your life. If you stand before the living God on the last day and claim you, you will perish. Our only claim is Christ, who he is and what he has done for us. Are we clear? We are saved by faith alone. We must always only look to Jesus and what he has done for our hope of salvation. His word is life. If you come to him hearing, believing, and doing, you will live. The psalmist said, my soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. His word is life. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law, he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. See this imagery that Jesus uses in verses 43 to 45 is well known to the scriptures and should be a familiar one to us. It also is in Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness, in an uninhabited land. Blessed is the man whose trust is in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. We find life in his word. Who is Jesus to say? What is right and what is wrong and how you and I must live? Who is he that we must obey him? He is God. And as God, his word is life. There are many who say rightly that he is God. There are many who say rightly, Lord, Lord, but do not do rightly. There are church attenders who are disciple pretenders. That's what Jesus was getting at. He was surrounded by a host of disciples who all called him Lord, Lord. They made the right confession. And he said, why do you not do as I tell you? So there are many church attenders today who are still disciple pretenders They don't do the worst that the world is into, by no means. They simply do what pleases them. Those who pretend will do as much as their fear will permit them to do. Because they don't want to lose face. They don't want to lose face in the culture, and they don't want to lose face in the church. And yet they do not do what pleases Jesus, they do what pleases themselves. They're afraid of losing face. They don't seek Jesus' face. So, someone might say, 
well, I don't, I'm not as bad as whatever. My sin, it's not that big of a deal. See, you and I might not cross the lines that the culture has laid down. We might not cross the lines that are laid down in, you know, official law, legislation. We might not cross those lines. You can say, I, I don't do what the culture says not to do. I don't do what the law says to do. And if you're in this bracket, age bracket, you might say, you know, there's most of the lines that my parents lay down, I don't cross those either. But those who live to please themselves cross all the lines that Jesus says not to cross. I say all. I think that there are many who would do much worse than they do, but are afraid of losing face. We cross the lines that Jesus says not to cross if we are not turned to him. So those who are church attenders but disciple pretenders, are they're not turned to Christ. They don't go where he says to go. If this is you, you don't do as he says to do. You don't love as he says to love. You don't give as he says to give. Your heart is not captured to do his will because you are not captivated by the beauty of the glory of Christ. Is this you? Why should you return to Jesus if this is you? Why should you come back to doing what he says? Because he is God and his word is life. And I also, I want you to get, so badly I want you to get this, He is good. He is good. I know why we reject so much authority. I've always, confession, I've always had this rebellious streak in me, a mile wide. Especially started to experience this when I, you know, very early on in high school, really struggled with authority. Don't, I don't want to do what anybody tells me to do. But not all authority is good. Here's the question for the rebel, and we all have the rebel within us. We all have seeds of the prodigal son within us. What authority can win your heart? Is there an authority who is good? Is there an authority who can win your heart? Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and he will abundantly pardon. That's Isaiah 55. The Lord didn't have to say that. He didn't have to say, if you come back to me, I will abundantly pardon. He could have just left it at, I will pardon you. But he says, I will abundantly pardon as only God can pardon. Have you been, are you being disobedient to God? Are you walking in your own way? Are you doing your own thing? See, God knows best, but uh, you also know quite well, better than others will know what you have been withholding from God. You know where your disobedience is. It may be hidden from others, but you know what you have been refusing the Lord. I want you never to believe the lie 
that he will not have you now. You've crossed so many lines. You've crossed the same lines so many times. You swore up and down you would not cross that line again, and you crossed it. And Satan says to you, your flesh, your heart say to you, deceptive as they are, he will not have you now. Do not ever believe the lie that he will not have you now. He wants the wandering as only God can want the wandering. He grieves for the strain as only God can grieve for those who stray. I, I want to read to you some of the kinds of things that God says, which are shocking things that he says to the strained sinner. He says, all day long, I hold out my hands to you. All day long, I hold out my hands to the disobedient and the contrary. Of Old Testament Israel, who often went by the name Ephraim, its largest tribe, he says, in the, in, in the days when they were on the brink of exile, he says, I taught them to walk. See the fatherly love and compassion. I took them up by their arms. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? My heart, listen to God. He says, my heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. I will not execute my burning anger. I will not again destroy Ephraim, for I am God and not a man, the Holy One in your midst, and I will not come in wrath. Judah, like the tribes to the north, also went into exile. And like the prodigal that comes to his senses in exile in the far country, Judah woke up. And then the people of Judah had their hearts screaming out 10,000 accusations, which were all true. And then they believed the lie. The Lord will not have us now. And so they said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. This is Isaiah 49. The Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. But he responds, can a woman forget her nursing child? that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? I I remember when I was a first-time father, how surprised I was, as all fathers, I think, are surprised at how our wives have these a new set of ears just reaching a new level of sense when it comes to their children in the middle of the night. There's just a little whimper, and boom, they're up. The Lord says, can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? It's hard to imagine, but it happens. Now and again, some mother who is not fit or whatever might forget her nursing child. The Lord says, even they may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Psalm 27. All may forsake you. You may have crossed so many lines that everybody says, forget you now. You might even have father and mother disown you because of your transgressions. But Psalm 27 says, even if my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord, who will not consume me in anger, 
the Lord will take me in. The Lord will take me in. And so the prodigal, he returns, he comes back, he wakes up, comes to his senses and says, what am I doing here in this slop, eating the the food that the pigs consume? When I could be back in my father's house, I might not be the, the son that I was, but I could be servant. I could start back up on the bottom rung and maybe work my way up. And so he comes back planning his repentance. And how does the, the father respond in Jesus' story who pictures God in heaven? You know, think about God and his infinity. His, his perfections, all of them are infinite. He knows no bounds in his strength and understanding and wisdom and such. And so my question that I was thinking about yesterday was, can, can the infinite God be overjoyed? Can the infinitely happy, perfectly happy God, who has been eternally happy in himself in the Trinity, can he be overjoyed? Can divine joy burst the immeasurable bounds. It sure seems like it when the Father runs after the Son. It sure seems like it that God is overjoyed when the lost come home. He is the one searching for the lost. And He is the one when the lost is found who throws the celebrations of heaven full of angels singing when the lost are found. He is the one when the sinner comes home who runs and embraces the prodigal and is full of joyful kisses and joyful weeping. That is our God. Who is Jesus to say what we are to do? He is God. And as God, His Word is life. Why should you want to do what Jesus says? Because He is good. He is good. He will never say, I will not have you now. Now there is coming a day, of course, either when Jesus returns or we are called out of this life in death, when it will be too late. But as long as you draw breath, you may return to the Lord. The disobedient will say, okay, I got my time. I can have my fun. But you don't understand the heart if that's what you say. Your heart will harden. If you live like that, saying one day I'm coming back, you will not come back. Your heart will be hardened. The calluses on your heart will be too thick. And you will not believe. You will not believe. Today, Now is the day of salvation. Call upon Him while He is near. Turn to Him while He may be found. And He will abundantly pardon. Can that authority, if any of you out here in this room are struggling with the obedience of faith, if you are doing your own thing, can that authority, can that authority win your heart? He is the King who died to have you. God, the Holy God, poured out the cup of His righteous anger. And Jesus, the
the holy, innocent Son of God, who lived in perfect obedience, stepped in and in perfect obedience drank the cup of God's holy anger dry that you might live. Let us do in the fullness of the Spirit as God enables. Let us do what He says, for He is God and He is good. May He win your heart. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, and his perfect life in our place, the life that we could never live, winning the salvation that we could never win or earn or buy. We thank you for his perfect death to pay the debt that we could never pay. And I thank you, Father, We thank you that you raised him to life. That our sins may be forgiven and we may live again, live anew with you forever. It's Jesus. All of our hope is in him. All of our worship is because of him. Our standing before you is in him. And we offer this prayer of thanks and praise in his name. And we pray that in Christ you would strengthen us to not only call him Lord, Lord, but do as he says in the power of your Holy Spirit. In Christ's name, amen.